Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift. Um, and that was Gary and Danami. Yeah, it's a very big, en- big weekend for the First Nations people with Invasion Day on Sunday. You're on community radio and the Paradigm Shift is going to deal with a very big topic today and it's no to war on Iran. US governments have authorised 29 consecutive years of bombing of Iraq. It started in 1991 with the first Gulf War. Bombing of Iraqi civilians occurs to this day. The country is destroyed. In early January, the US military used a drone to assassinate a top Iranian official, General Qasim Soleimani. Both Iran and Iraq governments claim that Soleimani was in Baghdad on peace negotiations with the Saudi Arabian officials. And it was regarding the US-backed war by Saudi Arabia against the people of Yemen in the south. This was a declaration of war when Iran responded by attacking two bases in Iraq and by downing a Ukrainian airliner carrying mostly Iranian people, the US war in the Gulf reached a crisis point. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison immediately came out saying that our 300 troops in Iraq will remain and an Australian frigate, the Toowoomba, will continue to patrol the choke point of oil trade in the world, the Gulf of Hormuz. Today we are going to discuss these events and try to work out a way of preventing war with Iran. I have some special guests with me today. Could we? Could I ask you to introduce yourselves? Okay, thanks Ian for the introduction. Um, very comprehensive. Yeah, my name's Annette Brownlee. I'm the president or chairperson of the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, uh, which is a network of some 60 organisations and uh, numerous individuals that have come together to uh, work on Australia's independence and avoidance of war and creation of peace. Yeah, hello, I'm Maureen Todd-Hunter. I'm a member of Just Peace Queensland, which is a member of the umbrella group IPAN. Is it a local group? Like Just Peace Queensland is a Brisbane-based group. Brisbane-based, but that has branches elsewhere? Uh, no, no. Not, not in this state. Yeah. Okay, and Corey? Oh, well, I'm just visiting. Uh, my name's Corey, and I used to be uh, one of the hosts of the show many years ago, and I've uh, come up to Brisbane to visit, so I thought I'd drop in, have a chat. Why not? Annette, a question for you to begin with. Why are you organising a rally tomorrow under the theme No to War on Iran and Bring the Troops Home? We, we're answering a, an international call to uh, hold a rally. Um, many, many cities throughout America... Uh, and in New Zealand and Australia has rallies happening in every capital st- city other than Darwin and Hobart. <laughs> so we think it's really important to have that solidarity with people around the world to, s- to have a voice to say, no, let's not do Iraq again. Surely we've learnt the lessons from Iraq. You know, a million people dead in that um, rep- part of the world in Iraq and the Pandora's box, the lids off it and we all know what's going on there. We cannot have Australia contributing to yet another war in the region with Iran. But um, did some private companies make a lot of money out of Iraq? Of course. We all know that corporations are the the real winners of war. Uh, That's that's just the reality. They they make money from the missiles. The one missile that hit Qasem uh, Soleimani uh, was... um, 
I looked this up on the internet, but that one missile was worth, I think it was a, it was close to $200,000 Australian dollars. Wow. And there was more than one mm. fired at the car that he was in. Well, so. it killed a whole lot of other people mm. too, including Iraqis. Mm. They weren't just targeting an Iranian general, they were targeting the whole car but virtually. Yeah. So, you know, as you say, you know, this is only in the interest of a very small uh, number of corporations and individuals who reap the monetary rewards of war. And they've got nothing to be nothing to gain from peace, unfortunately. But we have the people. Mm. And How have you been organising in the past few weeks? The assassination occurred, which is sort of the trigger, I think, on the 3rd of January. So what have you been doing in the meantime to put together this rally tomorrow? First of all, national communication with the other states' um, representatives of IPAN to discuss just how we would manage this. And then with Just Peace in Brisbane, we called an organising meeting uh, to bring as many of the representatives of various peace organisations and political organisations together to collectively work out how we were going to uh, hold the rally tomorrow in the city. So, you know, we've always believed that it's really important to um, look for the cooperation and uh, collegiality of of organising any event that uh, needs to happen. I attended a meeting <coughs> at Trades Hall, which you had called, and it was really quite um, encouraging that 15 people representing a variety of different peace groups had come together so early in the year to discuss this, this issue. Of course, it was a very... It is a very urgent issue, uh, although the media has um, basically gone cold on it. Um, the fact remains it is a tinderbox just waiting to light up again and um, behind the scenes or certainly outside of the Australian media um, there's lots of incidents occurring with um, bombings of different sites um, that again are maintaining that um, very um, unstable situation in Iraq and Iran so uh, we thought it was really important, although the media has gone cold on this, that we call the rally tomorrow and bring people together. It is that uh, togetherness, working together, that we can make a difference. Uh, if we try to do it just with one group or one individual, um, we, can't, we can't be effective. Overnight I've been listening to podcasts from America and um, whilst uh, the media here has gone cold on it, it's a really quite intense examination and the reason is that the presidential nomination campaign is, is afoot. The Iowa primaries are in less than two weeks' time and so there's a lot of media speculation as to what Trump is doing um, to engineer himself, you know, firstly away from being impeached because his impeachment trial is on at the moment, but also to maybe create a, another sort of narrative that detracts from the criticism of him um, and, and his administration. Because so. it, he almost said that he was a little bit anti-war because he said that it was taking money away from the, you know, the working classes that he claims to represent. Um, how would you say that he has delivered on his uh, original rhetoric... I mean, he kind of flip-flops on everything. That's Well, but rhetoric is, is the guts of it. We are talking rhetoric. It has a political purpose expressly. It is about promotion of himself. I can't imagine that there is any literate, considered-thinking American person who could possibly listen to a single word he says <laughs> and believes there is a shred of truth in it. Um, but evidently people do support him, which is surprising to an outsider. Yeah, he's got his um, particular um, areas where he touches a nerve for people in certain demographics in America, and we, we know all that. Um, it's just whether, uh, you know, the strategy that's involved uh, that either he or his... Um, 
uh, who's behind him is pulling together. It's really hard to work out, you know, because he is, he is so unpredictable in his um, statements that he makes. But you, I, I feel fairly sure that behind the scenes there will be people advising him, well, we do this now and we do this, you know, later. Whether that means that, you know, the attack, the assassination on Soleimani was uh, strategic um, and they've decided now just to pull back on that or whether they are prepared to go further. We all know the history of, um, you know, wars being fought uh, that that reinforce uh, power of a particular sitting leader. So yeah, that's out of our hands, really, to know just what's going to happen there. To answer your question, Corey, I'd like to have a shot at it. Um, in the 2016 presidential election, um, Trump played to an audience, and, of course, he played to particular political organisations and perspectives. And on the anti-war side of his message in that election, he was playing to the libertarian. Now, the libertarian, we often think of them as being left or right, but in, in the US, they're right. And that's not to say that they're not people of principle. Um, you know, one of our most famous prime ministers, Malcolm Fraser, was a great acolyte of Ayn Rand, who was probably the preeminent libertarian of the 20th century. So Trump, being a huckster, he played to those people and they actually, their position is an anti-war position. And so they, they do it for economic reasons. They want for the US to go back to isolationism. They want a withdrawal. From and and they want to a, a, they want to go back to what the U.S. was in the 18th and 19th century. It you know this this thing of American interventionism, it's only a creature of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. they, before that, they were always isolationists. They, kept, they you know okay they did have um, a war against uh, Mexico, and in the War of Independence they did. Well, they took on the British, but they were on the home soil. It was a, it was a true war of independence. They even had stouches with the, the French, but they, they were never interventionists in that, in the way that we in our lifetime have learnt. Mm. You know, they went to Vietnam, and they've, they've been in the Middle East, um, and this, and, but there's a section of the conservatives in America who just don't want that. They want uh, an isolationism, a return back to, you know, building the economy at home and uh, so people can make lots of money. The biggest protagonist now on the libertarian right is a guy called Rand Paul. I think he's a billionaire. He's, pro he's, he's probably a candidate, actually, for, on the Republican side. I, I, I don't know. He, but he, he came out and said, I, I, I disapprove of what Trump did. He didn't need to assassinate Soleimani. And and he's speaking from a principle there, and anyway, let's let's um, as a background. Um, I don't know if they're people from IPAN, but Bevan Ramston, he's from yes, IPAN. Certainly is. Yeah. So Independent Peaceful Australia Network, mm -hmm. and Andrew Fullerton, they have very graciously put together a little podcast, taking us back to give us a better understanding of how this all came about. And they believe we've got to go back to 1951, I think. So let's, <laughs> let's play the first part of their backgrounding on this issue. To understand the US-Iran crisis, we must go back to 1951, when the popular, democratic and secular government of Dr Mohammad Mazadek was elected with a pledge to nationalise Iran's British-controlled oil industry and use its profits to benefit the people. Mossadegh carried out this promise in May 1951 and in August 1953 his government was overthrown in a coup 
organised by the United States and Britain, bringing to power Reza Pahlavi, the Shah of Iran, who promptly restored United States and British control of Iran's oil industry, with the United States grabbing the major share. This foreign plunder of Iran's oil wealth, in addition to the brutality and corruption of the Shah's regime, caused intense popular resentment and was a major factor in the 1979 Islamic Revolution, which overthrew the Shah and restored to Iran control of its oil industry. Ever since, the United States has imposed sanctions on Iran, ringed it with military bases and sought to undermine and overthrow its government. On July the 3rd, 1988, the United States warship Vincennes shot down an Iranian civil airliner on a scheduled flight with a loss of 290 lives. Faced with unrelenting United States hostility, Iran has developed a defensive ballistic missile capability. It has also developed a nuclear industry for power generation, which, as a sovereign state, is fully entitled to do so and has consistently rebutted US allegations that it plans to acquire nuclear weapons. The US continues to accuse Iran of seeking to acquire nuclear weapons without any real evidence that it was doing so, and has, through the United Nations, imposed crippling economic sanctions in an effort to force Iran to make a commitment not to produce enriched uranium for nuclear weapons and to allow international inspection of its facilities. The sanctions have had a severe impact on the lives of the Iran's people. For example, Hospitals have been unable to purchase spare parts for equipment used in cancer treatment. In 2015, the United Nations, under pressure from the US Obama administration, negotiated with Iran an agreement called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, which had the support of the European powers and involved Iran making a commitment not to produce nuclear weapons and allow international inspection of its nuclear facilities. After the international inspectors were satisfied that Iran was in compliance, the JCPOA took effect. On the 16th of January 2016, it was announced by the International Atomic Energy Agency that Iran had adequately dismantled its nuclear weapons program and the sanctions were immediately lifted. Gasping my last breath Close by me lie the bodies of those I love This man before me must be death In green and brown he fallen and beast above My mind it screams in agony Somehow the worst pain I feel burns in my heart Tears bring flooding memories Our lives of simple joy now shattered apart And I thought, why do they come here? These demons of hell That servant angels, I fear They were summoned by an evil spell what have we done to deserve a horror such as this? 
Cause I beg Allah for the answer I'm greeted by death's kiss You're listening to Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ. And we were just listening to Franz Dowling and Margaret Pistorius with their song Demons of Hell. Well, it's more Franz's song, which was a field recording that I did in 2018 when I went up to their court case in Alice Springs where they were um, in quite a lot of trouble for walking onto Pine Gap. And that was from a night where we, we had a lament at the War Memorial. So pretty powerful stuff from Franz. Of course, Pine Gap is one of the five eyes of um, US military operations in the world. And of course, anything that happens in the Middle East is seen through a lens of, of Pine Gap. And that's why they oppose it, because they want us to have an independent, you know, we don't want to be the subject of a nuclear strike. Yeah. And they, um, in the court case, they were saying that they ran drone strikes in the Middle East out of Pine Gap. So it's a, you know, very important uh, base. Annette, I wonder if you could give us the details of the rally and also summarise the concerns of in Independent Peaceful Australia Network. Uh, yeah, the, the rally is going to be held tomorrow morning uh, in King George Square at 11 o'clock. Uh, we've got some great speakers coming along. John O, which everyone will know, Jonathan Sree. Uh, Michael McNally, who's the Queensland General Secretary of the uh, National Tertiary Education Union. Um, Frederica Steen, again, many people will know Freddie from her activism and advocacy for refugees. And Habib Jamal, who is the President of the Islamic Council of Queensland. So we invited uh, Habib uh, because, again, this is another attack on Muslim people or the Muslim countries of the world. So whether it's Shia or Sunni, it doesn't really matter. We've had a whole, you know, 30 years of demonising of, of, uh, of Islamic um, nations and Muslim people. So we thought it was important to have him there. Freddie, of course, because of the impact of war on refugees and just the human rights that have been so damaged as a result of, uh, of the wars and um, our offshore detention of refugees. Michael McNally is going to be speaking uh, on the economic impacts of our militaristic um, government and position on both sides of government, in fact. Um, both, um, both the major parties really are in hook, line and sinker with the American alliance. And at some point, we've really got to challenge that American alliance and, in fact, calling on our country to stay out of this next war, uh, whether it happens or whether it doesn't, is also what we need. It, that's part of challenging uh, the Australian-American alliance, which you know, drags us into these terrible wars that cost so much in human suffering, but also economically. And, of course, Jonathan Sree, uh, he's just such a great advocate for... Um, truly sustainable future and we can't have a sustainable future from a climate perspective if we keep this militaristic war footing happening around the world. You know, that is just the biggest roadblock to dealing with climate change, apart from the fact that the whole military adventure contributes such significant amounts of greenhouse gases uh, into the atmosphere as well. Thanks for that. Um, we're, we're going to actually hear a bit more on the connection between the burning of fossil fuels and uh, peace from Gareth Smith, who I interviewed earlier this morning. In, in terms of tomorrow, I think the fires that have ravaged this country didn't just burn the landscape. 
I think they've also ignited fires in the people of this country who realise there's been a threshold crossed and there is an anger and a will to take action. And I think expressions of, of that will for action tomorrow provides a really good venue to come together and unite to express grievance but also support for each other and recognition that things have changed. We must act together. Let's go back now to the backgrounding that Bevan and Andrea prepared for the show. It, you're on the paradigm shift. We're talking no to war on Iran. Shortly after Trump was elected in 2016, he denounced the JCPOA agreement as a bad deal. On May the 18th, 2018, the United States withdrew from the JCPOA, reimposed economic and other sanctions on Iran, and threatened to blacklist any US or foreign company that continued to have dealings with Iran. This caused consternation among the United States European allies, who pointed out that Iran was abiding by the JCPOA, and they were determined to keep it going because it had achieved basically what they wanted. As a counter to the US financial sanctions on Iran, in February 2019, France, Germany and the United Kingdom announced that they had created a payment channel named Instex to bypass the US sanctions regime. The EU also attempted to counter US pressure by threatening to fine European companies who complied with the United, Nations, United States sanctions. The EU, however, was powerless to stop European companies from complying with the sanctions because those companies could not afford to lose their US business. Iran, seeing the EU's inability to prevent the US re-imposing sanctions, has gradually backed out of the JCPOA and warned that it would soon be exceeding the upper limit set by the joint agreement for its uranium enrichment program. The US has increased pressure on Iran with the deployment of an aircraft carrier and 1,000 more US troops to the Middle East, and now demands that Iran end its ballistic missile development program. In mid-June 2019, two oil tankers, one Norwegian and the other Japanese, were attacked and set on fire in the Gulf of Oman, which borders Iran. The US accused Iran of being behind these attacks, an accusation Iran denied. Norway, the EU, the UN and Japan were sceptical of the US claims and called for an independent investigation. The US has meantime stepped up its propaganda campaign against Iran and is planning airstrikes. The Jerusalem Times of June 17, 2019 reports that diplomatic sources at the United Nations headquarters in New York revealed to Mariv that they are assessing the United States plans to carry out a tactical assault on Iran in response to the tanker attack in the Persian Gulf. The military action under consideration would consist of air attacks on facilities linked to Iran's nuclear program, the officials further claimed. Successive Australian governments have allowed us to become dependent on imported petroleum products including a significant proportion from the Middle East shipped via the Straits of Hormuz. The eastern shore of this strait is Iranian territory and has defensive missile installations along its length. A US war on Iran would undoubtedly disrupt or even block completely the passage of oil tankers through the Straits of Hormuz, thus creating a fuel crisis in Australia with serious and unpredictable consequences. Clearly, a US war with Iran is not in Australia's interests, yet our military alliance with the United States makes it inevitable that we will be drawn into such a war. US military spokespersons are already hinting that allies such as Australia would be expected to support a US war on Iran on the basis of protecting their oil supplies, ignoring the obvious fact that war on Iran 
would prevent ships using the Straits of Hormoz anyway. Other sources have pointed out that tankers could not transit the Straits of Hormoz in the event of war because insurance companies would not cover them. Hello again. That was um, Bevan Ramston and Andrew Fullerton giving a, a good economic analysis of what's actually going on in the Gulf at the moment, particularly how strategic that Gulf of Hormuz is, because I think the stats go something like this. One third of the entire world's supply of gas that's consumed travels through what are very narrow straits, mm. and one quarter of all the consumed oil in the world travel through those those straits. So that is a highly strategic re region for a lot of interests. And, um, of course, the US being what it is, um, it has ringed that whole area with US bases and they, they've got substantial firepower in those bases, a lot of boots on the ground and a lot of ships that are nuclear armed. Um, but I wanted to just change the, the focus a little bit on this discussion more to Iran itself and um, get, I'd be interested to hear your perspectives on this question. Iranian women have been protesting on the streets against the mullahs, both before this and now again. And the influence that, that, that the mullahs are exerting on their lives how do we support the liberation of women in Iran, especially when there's a possibility that they become pawns in a game between superpowers like the US and, and, and also Iran itself? It reminds me of the dilemma, the so-called dilemma we were in with Afghanistan and the Taliban, in fact. And, um, you know, there's been lots of claims made that you know, women have been advantaged by the war in Afghanistan and removal of the Taliban. But, you know, we all know the Taliban now controls the vast majority of Afghanistan and all those lives have been lost and women have basically lost out yet again. So, you know, there is no um, uh, way that we can support the women of Iran by bombing Iran or you know, creating f further wars in the area. What do you think, Ma Maureen? Uh, absolutely so, but the first thing that comes to my mind is sanctions. Stop the sanctions, because the sanctions are what serve to cripple the grassroots level. People suffer. Women, as mothers trying to care for their kids, their lives are toughened by sanctions. Do we want sanctions to do that? Mm. To, to, to harden the lives of the people on the ground because that's who's suffering. And I think one way that we might be able to support women is through stopping sanctions. Yeah, well, um, we know that they had severe sanctions before this crisis, but then immediately when they said they weren't going to do anything more, it was almost as if there'd been an arrangement between the US and Iran about, it's hard to say at this stage, but they immediately ramped up the sanctions so mm -hmm. that, for example, in an oil-rich country, it's very hard for people even to get petrol. Mm -hmm. So the processing must be offshore for some of that. And, uh, but that ha is having a really dire economic effect upon all... Of, well, it's a big country, 80 million people. 80 million, and I think something like 75% are under the age of 35 or statistics like that and I think in terms of um, supporting um, the people of Iran in their rights to work towards a society that they want both women and particularly the young people of Iran that are, are looking to break away from the theocracy that's running their government that is that is their right and we just need to be open about you know, their right and our, our support for them to exercise that right in their protests and in the way that they uh, are going about it. We can't do that for them. That has to be, you know, their self-determination. Two years ago, almost to the day, we had a, um, an Iranian, young Iranian man by the name of Michael Amiri on this show, and he highlighted the fact that women particularly young women in Tehran were standing up 
to the extent that they would go to a certain place in a square, they'd just stand on a like a, a soapbox and they'd put on a white scarf. Mm. And for that, they got beaten, mm. they got tear gassed, they mm. got harassed by, you know, whoever took objection to them doing that because everyone knew what that meant. You know, they'd take off their hijab and then they'd put on a white scarf and it's, it's called White Scarf Day. So they are standing up in the country itself. Um, and I, it's, but it's a big barrier. You don't, it's very hard even, for example, on the, the media to really talk to people here because they come here, they're, they're, they're fearful mm. of repercussions. They may never be able to return home. We have a lot of Iranian... Yeah, got a lot of roadblocks there yeah. for uh, a t free and open society in Iran. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I wonder too if... And this is an idea that's evolving as I try and say it. But the extent to which Western nations can serve as models... We are not models by invasion, by acts of war... And if the message that nations such as the US, UK, Australia give is, you know, th this is good nationhood, you're going and bomb, it also gives messages about the people and the women of this country. Well, mm. it's a use of violence to get an end. Indeed it is. I mean, that's not so great for women. Yes. Absolutely. Th yeah, in terms of modeldom, that's exactly right. But um, I, I had a... Slightly different question. Are you going to the Invasion Day rally tomorrow? On Sunday? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, um, that's a really important um, opportunity for us to, for all people um, in Australia to support the self-determination of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. It's a particularly poignant day for us all in Brisbane with the passing of Sam Watson, mm. who we all uh, had so much respect for in his leadership. Uh, he will be missed, but he's trained up a lot of other wonderful people to come up behind him, including uh, descendants from his family. But, um, yeah, no, important to um, at least for us to remember that the first war that was waged in this country, in Australia, was uh, by the British as they came in and invaded a sovereign nation with uh, established communities and countries of people that um, suffered as a result and continue to suffer as a result of that invasion. I'm just going to go to a song now. It's actually uh, Who Killed Reza Barati by Phil Monsoor, but at the beginning of it you might make out, it's actually my sister who's making a plea on behalf of refugees. Reza Barati, of course, uh, was an Iranian man. He was Kurdish, so he's from the north. He came to Australia, um, was put in detention on Manus Island and was murdered by the guards. And this is what our government had stooped to. And so let's just go to that song now. This action is happening tonight. These vigils are happening all around the country. There are over a thousand. The, we must remember Reza, who died, and we must ask for the closure of Manus Island. Who killed Reza Barati? Why did he die and who is guilty? Not me, says the politician, and those closing borders wins elections. His death we do regret, but stopping the boats is what we said. Who comes to this country, we will decide. It's just too bad that young men died. It wasn't me that smashed his head, you can't blame me, now he's dead. Who killed Reza Barati? Why'd he die and who is guilty? Not me, says the humble boulder, Australian flag wrapped round his shoulders. He should have come the proper way, fuck up, we're full is what we say. It's not our fault he was on the run, if he wasn't locked up then more would come. I'm sorry that that stranger died, if I knew him I would have cried. Who killed Reza Barati? Why'd he die and who is guilty? 
Not me, says the company chairman whose corporation ran his island prison. For my stockholders, I do my best, returning the profits that they expect. I'm not responsible for what happened to him. I'm not to blame for every employee's sin. Any inquiry, you will see there are others complicit before it comes to me. Who killed Reza Barati? Why did die and who is guilty? I said the big world leader who prosecutes the war on terror I'm keeping the world safe for you It's what leaders are appointed to do The refugees that have to flee are not my responsibility Don't point your finger at me He was in prison to keep you free Who killed Reza Barati? Why'd he die and who is guilty? Not me, says the TV presenter, that politicians wrap round their fingers. I report how they said he died in any way they won't let us inside. I believe in the public's right to know, but you can't take cameras where they can't go. I'm not responsible for any death. We report the news by what rates best. Who killed Reza Barati? Why'd he die and who is guilty? Not me, says the guard from G4S They put our security under stress It's what we were contracted to do Cruel and dirty jobs for you He should have accepted his fate Gone back before it was too late Don't say murder, don't say kill I was doing my job, you paid the bill Who killed Reza Barati? Why'd he die and who is guilty? Could you please introduce yourself? My name's Gareth Smith and I've been a long-time campaigner against militarism, promoting peace, anti-nuclear and environmental issues, and, of course, human rights issues, which include East Timor and especially Palestine at this time. Could you give our listeners some idea of how you came to adopt these positions? That's an interesting one, because uh, many years ago, when I left university, I was all set to join the British Army in the Education Corps as a psychologist. But um, I, I, I remember going to Nottingham University Peace Group, and it was the result of meeting up with those peace activists that uh, dissuaded me from that career. And, um, and then listeners may not remember the war game, which was a BBC production about uh, the threat of nuclear war. And it was actually banned in, from being screened in Britain for many years. But when we saw that film, it was a bit like uh, Jonathan Shell's The Fate of the Earth. It was absolutely shocking. And uh, that, I think, was the prime stimulus which set me off on this um, activist uh, path. So how do you put your anti-war ideas into practice? I think um, the most effective way is to try and show the opportunity costs to people. For example, I take a blood thinner called a liquid. And with a pensioner prescription, I pay $6.50 a month. Whereas in America, through Costco, that would cost $450 a month. So when you realize that there are Americans dying because they can't afford to buy insulin, others have sold their homes to pay for pharmaceuticals, if you offset that appalling state of affairs, against the colossal expenditure on weapons of all descriptions. If people realize I'm suffering because of this misuse of our scarce resources, I think that's the most effective way of getting people to appreciate the anti-war message. And, of course, um, referring them to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, the famous doomsday clock. Um, which has had its hand, minute hand shifted 20 seconds closer to midnight, so it's now 100 seconds away from midnight because of the threat of climate change, uh, nuclear war, and information warfare. So I think that's the focus. This is what you're missing out on because of misspent resources. I think the threat is probably too great for most people to envisage. It's almost science fiction and they can't believe it's rooted very deeply in reality. The US, on the 3rd of January this year, used a drone to execute Iranian General Qasim Soleimani. Is this US drone program of assassination, which was started by President Obama, is it a legitimate tactic in resolving conflicts in the Middle East? 
Uh, well, no, absolutely not. Uh, and particularly when the assassination is increasingly being put in the hands, if I could use that expression, uh, of artificial intelligence, drones programmed with facial recognition uh, on the drawing board and perhaps also um, being used to seek out individuals for assassination, which, of course, has been Israel's preferred tactic now for decades. Bergman's recent book, uh, Rise and Kill First, is an exhaustive examination of the assassination policy of the Israeli state, which obviously works hand-in-glove with the United States. And it's not just assassination, because the Americans still have a first-strike military doctrine. So that's simply assassinating, genocidally speaking, whole populations of people. But if you look at Daniel Ellsberg's um, marvelous essay called Call to Mutiny, which was published um, 2003, I think, uh, in the monthly review. Maybe, no, it was earlier. It was 1980-something. And in that, in that essay, um, Daniel Ellsberg, who actually drew up plans for nuclear attack and nuclear war doctrine, he points out that the possession of nuclear weapons, it's not any longer a notion of... Um, mutually assured destruction, because how could that threaten credibly any other country which would know if you launch these weapons of mass destruction, we're all gomers. We're not going to stop it once it starts. But the threat today is extremely credible because of the change from mutually assured destruction to nuclear use tactics. So that goes hand in glove with the miniaturization of nuclear weapons which now makes them practically indistinguishable from conventional weapons. So now, as Ellsberg points out, the threat is like someone holding a loaded gun against the head of another person. That's the reality of nuclear weapon possession in today's world. And Ellsberg details how that threat had been made by repeated American administrations going way back to the time when they wanted to keep the Russians out of northern Iran. So that threat of a nuclear strike was made then. It was also made when the French were beleaguered um, in Dien Bien Phu. Also when U.S. Marines were trapped at the Choice in Reservoir. And so... He gives all these de historical examples of where the possession of nuclear weapons give power over the other entity. It's a bit like Clausewitz's famous dictum that uh, war is the continuation of diplomacy by other means. So you can say possession of nuclear weapons confers a threat which amounts to diplomatic force leveled at another country. And this is why Israel um, preeminently wants to hold on to the monopoly of nuclear weapons in the Middle East because it uses them coercively in this manner. And the last thing it wants is for Iran to rival it in this regard. A nuclear-armed Iran, uh, according to Israel's lights, will never, ever be allowed to occur. Um, and... Various Israeli presidents, from Shamir onwards to Netanyahu, have boasted about how influential Israel is in dictating American foreign policy in regard to Iran. So they will engineer uh, an attack on Iran in all if they think that thanks to the um, pullout by the Americans of the policy of restraining Iran's enrichment program. And now Iran has announced that it is now accelerating that enrichment program, and it's probably about two years away from developing its first nuclear weapon. It looks as though there's a collision course, course, that, uh, course that we're on. Um, if it comes to fruition, then it could well, very well herald World War III. So the killing of Soleimani 
um, is a, a dire mistake by the Americans. Um, and I believe, I, I've got no facts to prove it, but I think as a result of the rising up in anger of the Iranian population over that assassination, that Israel, the United States, probably Britain and other interested parties, they may well, they may well have engineered um, the destruction of that Ukrainian aircraft because the Russian missile battery, which is responsible for shooting it down, is equipped with a friend or foe electronic in, uh, interrogator and it interrogates the aircraft's transponder so it would know that that was a civilian airliner posing no threat however it turns out that that transponder on the aircraft was not functioning and it also seems that the interrogation the electronic interrogation on the russian missile battery was also not functioning. And if you add those facts together, plus the fact that the United States uh, Air Force and the United States Navy have developed advanced um, hacking, electronic hacking measures, uh, where they've actually boasted about being able to disable um, missile batteries identifying incoming aircraft. So it's quite possible that that's all been engineered to turn the Iranian population en masse against its own government. Books at Stones is an independent, family-owned bookstore specialising in Australian authors and stories, with also a range of medical, nursing and alternative medicine textbooks and many more interesting selections for you to choose from. Come on down to 360 Logan Road at Stones Corner. See www.booksatstones.com.au for more info. Don't forget to flash your 4ZZZ subscriber card for a 10% discount. Books at Stones, a proud sub-discount outlet of 4ZZZ. You're on the paradigm shift. We're just coming towards the end of the show now. Opinion Police is up next, and I'm sure Sean is nearly ready. I hope he's got a good show lined up for us. Now, I've got one more question. Um, this is to Annette. Um, if a missile is fired or if there is a, a con, you know, an inflation or, I don't know what the word is, uh, the crisis... Escalation. Yeah, escalates, then what should we do? We'd like everyone to meet in King George Square, 5pm on that day. So we'd call people together, 5pm in King George Square. Yeah. Then collectively we will organise just uh, what our next steps would be. Okay. Any other? Yeah, I think it's time for us all to recognise we are not quiet Australians. We must be radically unquiet Australians. Yeah, agree. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent, yes. Uh, well, that's what the media is, is hmm. for, well, part of it anyway. Especially community-owned media, such as 4ZZZ. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, we've got a big weekend coming up. Tonight we have, um, a, like, Series 3 of the SAC ScoMo rallies. So there's been a, a really quite significant um, mobilisation occurred. The first one, uh, 10,000 people must have turned up in Brisbane, so it was really big. But with the... The, the smoke and the fires, at least here, just going away. The last week's wasn't as big, but a lot of energy and a lot of trying to bring the issues out to people about the failure of our government to address uh, climate justice. So, Annette, you've got some and stuff tomorrow, there. yes, as said before, 11 o'clock in King George Square for the No War on Iran rally. Um, we're also calling for Australia to bring home all of our military forces, as the Iraqi government has requested, and to turn HMAS Toowoomba around and get it out of the Gulf of um, uh, Hummus which is now just a melting pot of so many ships and so many potential disasters happening there. And for us to fight fires, not war, 
Um, we believe that uh, the, there's a strong call there for us to, to deal with our real national security issue, which is climate change, and the manifestation of that at this very time is bushfires, which is still going on. And on Sunday, there is the annual Invasion Day rally. Uh, it begins this year in Queen's Park um, at 11am. Uh, uh, no doubt there'll be a, a big group of people there. I, I should say there's a flag raising at 8am at Jagera Hall in Musgrave Park. So it's just off Cordelia Street there. If people want to go to that, that's always a very interesting ceremony where they raise the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags. Um, and then there's the rally in, in Queen's Park um, at 11 and then there's a big march and everyone comes back to Musgrave Park. There's a lot of um, dancing, there's a lot of um, cultural business goes on there and it's always a great sort of festival. Interesting that they convert an invasion commemoration into this great festival thing it's that great. happens. Yeah. 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 Um, so any parting thoughts? Morning. <laughs> Yeah, let's keep our act together and remember what the fires have started. It's a flame within ourselves, within our hearts. Let's keep it burning for action. I'm yeah, going to go yeah. out with... What about you, Corey? Oh, I can't be that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go out with the song El Derecho de Vivir en Pace, which is a song by Victor Hara, and it means to the right to live in peace. Uh, he wrote this song really about the Vietnam War and um, the, it's in Spanish but the lyrics are pretty well explanatory, you know, they're just making a call that everyone has that right to live in peace. So thanks everyone for coming today for, for, for Independent Peaceful Australia Network, Just Peace and... Random. <laughs> independent Stringer here. <laughs> okay, see you next week. El derecho de vivir Sin miedo en nuestro país En conciencia y unidad Con toda la humanidad Ningún cañón borrará El surco de la hermandad Hello.